that, and I think you see in chapter four, verses one through six, that our lifestyle doesn't fit in. People think we're weird, and uh, they speak against us because we don't, uh, you know, we're not comfortable for them. We have a whole different uh, pattern. We do different things. We find different things fun than what they do, and uh, they don't understand us. They don't relate to that, and. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, this alienation kind of between worldlings and uh, and Christians will lead to some of the concepts that he has in this next section. So would somebody read 7 through 11? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose <clears throat> of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, we have a very different perspective on time and on what really matters. The end of all things is near. There's a sense in which every since, ever since Jesus died, rose, and went back to heaven... End time events are underway. We're in the final era. Uh, we're in the last stage of God's redemptive process. Jesus' work was kind of the climax of the plan of God, purpose of God, since the beginning, and now that's uh, come. And so I think we've been living in the last days, in the final era, and we sense the... Uh, finality of that. We sense that the end of all things is near. Now, the hard thing about that is, that was 2,000 years ago he said that, and we're still here. I like to think of it this way. Imagine that you were running toward a cliff, and when you got right to the edge of the cliff, you turned and walked right along the edge of the cliff. You are just that close to dropping off. But theoretically, you could continue walking along the edge for a long, long time, always near dropping off, but not doing so. I think that's what happened. I think up until Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, we were running toward this purpose of God, this promise and plan of God to bring the seed of the woman, Abraham, David, etc., to save men from their sins. Now that that's happened, he's gone back to heaven, then we're just that close to the end at any moment. There's nothing else, it seems to me, that uh, God has uh, promised and planned, and there's no, there's nothing left to be fulfilled. And so we live with a sense of the nearness of the end. It may not chronologically occur that soon, or it might, but it could at any moment. And because of that, we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We're to be cool-headed and not get wrapped up or carried away with the things of this life. You know, we've got to take things soberly and seriously. We just look at life so much differently than worldlings do. You know, they are just in it for a good time and you know, all the laughs they can get while they go through, we're thinking in much more otherworldly terms. We're thinking in terms of this life being brief, and we see the seriousness of what's going on. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't enjoy blessings from God, but we enjoy those with less gusto and with less of a whole heart than what people in this world do. And uh, we're much more prayerful, and we're much more thoughtful, and we're much more sober about what this life is really all about. Thoughts and comments on verse 7. Is there a specific, for the purpose of prayer, is that just prayer generally, or is there a specific 
I'm okay with prayer generally. I don't know that he says it's specific, but I mean, again, praying connects us with our real home and with our real purpose. And when you're praying, you're going outside of this universe. You're talking to someone uh, in your homeland. And I think all of that just makes us look at this differently. It makes us take it more seriously and certainly develop less attachment. And one of my biggest concerns for us as Christians is we get so attached to so much here. And God's people have never been the attached ones. They've generally not been the successful ones, the the uh, ones that, that make it well in this life. They've generally been unpopular. They've experienced a lot of hostility and poverty and, and failure and things like that. As we experience so much success and prosperity and, and well-being, the tendency is just to get attached. Uh, I use this illustration every once in a while. You've probably heard me say this. But <clears throat> it reminds me of the story of the carcass of the animal floating down the North American River on a cold winter day. And there's this vulture that sees the carcass. Remember that bottom line? The vulture sees the carcass and swoops down to feed on it. And he feeds for a while, and then he looks up, and way off in the distance, there's this, you know, terrible waterfall. But it's a long ways away. So the, the vulture continues to feed and feed and feed, and then it looks up again, and the waterfall's very close now. But it, it thinks, you know, not yet, so it continues to take advantage of the opportunity. And finally, at the last possible moment, just as the body of that animal is starting to plunge over that, that waterfall, the vulture raises its wings to fly away, but it can't. Its feet have been frozen to the body of that animal, and it's plunged to its destruction. Isn't that what happens to us? We want to feed, 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 feed on the world. And we think, because when the crisis comes, I'll be able to fly away. I'm, you know, I can... But we get attached. We get we get so uh, focused on this world that I don't know if we have what it takes to fly away. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I just think that's that's got to be a perspective that troubles us. And I think it troubles us, should trouble us, that we are successful. It makes it so much more challenging for us. Because pretty soon we're more like a worldling than like an extraterrestrial. But as people who don't fit in and belong here, then verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers the multitude of sins. As pilgrims, to survive the social hostility and the alien environment, we want to band together with our fellow pilgrims. You know, and and it's it's that that's maybe a challenge... <clears throat> When things are difficult, obviously they were suffering a lot of persecution. They were they were really uh, adverse circumstances. Sometimes in those moments, it's easy to turn on each other. He says in uh, Matthew twenty four, in talking about the you know they will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you, they'll be hated by all the nations, uh, many will fall away, they'll betray one another and hate one another, and he says. Uh, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Sometimes it's easy for us in, in threatening circumstances to become embittered toward each other and, and sort of isolated. But what really needs to happen is that's when we need to band together the most. And as he says, keep fervent in your love for one another. Great intensity. There needs to be a lot of uh, real you know, focus on that, that love for each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, how does love cover a multitude of sins? Primarily with one thing. Forgiveness? Forgiveness. I think that's it. I mean, I think it is through forgiveness that our sins are covered, and so someone who loves have a, has a forgiving disposition toward a brother or sister. doesn't hold grudges, we might say. Uh, blessed is he, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32. 
and verse 1 uh, uses those kind of together. And also in Psalm 85, 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin. So I think he's saying, you know, if when you love, you forgive your brother. And you keep on forgiving. You view what he does in the best light. You dispose of it quickly and quietly. You know, if you hate your brother, what do you do with his sin? There's this billboard on the uh, main street that's waiting for you to spread the details. Absolutely. You want to advertise and broadcast them and exaggerate them. You want to make them a lot worse than what they really are. Uh, Whereas when you love him fervently, then you want to excuse them, forgive them, uh, not, uh, not, you know, remember them, not focus on them. Some things are just not even worth thinking about. Uh, but even when there's some major issue, we're eager to forgive, we're eager to resolve. Where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, and every action is uh, subject to being misunderstood and misrepresented. When there's love, wow, it just resolves so many things. And I mean, that's, that's a challenge. You think about the brothers and sisters we don't like very well. You know, our challenge is to love them. We probably don't like them because instead of loving them, our dislike for them has caused us to magnify their faults and the grievances we feel and whatever else. And so it's really, uh, really so important to keep fervent in our love for one another. And verse 9, I mean, love is not just not, you know, holding a grudge. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Um... You wouldn't expect your worldling friends to be very hospitable, even your worldling relatives. Aliens need hospitality among their own. You know, you kind of uh, seek uh, kind of a, um, what would be the word, uh, you know, kind of a closed environment, a secure environment. And that would be with your brothers and sisters. The church is to be a family where Christians that are shunned by unbelievers find a place. And isn't that so true in our society? We are very transient. We're lonely. We need homes. We need places where people feel comfortable. Uh, we need to make people feel at home without complaint. You know, that's a hard thing. What, what would make you complain about being hospitable? objects of your hospitality were ungrateful. Yes, if they don't appreciate all the the work that you've done, the food, making the food, all, cleaning the house. All the, yes, know. all that work you've done, the time and the trouble and also the money. money, the expense. You know, those are things that could make you kind of grumble and what how do they leave the house? You know, all messed up. You know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, annoying things about being hospitable. And you know how people are. They don't all have the same etiquette that I do or you do or whatever. And so that's all kind of complicated. And, uh, you know, pretty soon we can be, oh, I'll I'll let you come over, but, you know, don't touch anything, you know, or whatever. Um, and, And then... Verse 10 is an application. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So serving each other. Serving each other with what? With gifts. Who gave us the gifts? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of Amen. So it's God that gave us the gifts. What do those gifts involved. What would be examples of those gifts? Verse 11. Well, what, what is verse 11? How does that relate to the gifts? Like speaking or, right. or being able to talk well, maybe be encouraging. What else? Think about your abilities. What abilities do Christians have that they're able to use in helping each other? 
a good perspective. Okay. I'm saying specific Christians. Maybe not you, but somebody has. Fixing cars. Fixing cars. Making bread. Making bread. Organizing finances. Cleaning a house. You know, helping with child care. Helping with elderly care. Um, you know, and I'm not, start, start thinking about some of the gifts you have. What are you good at? What are you able to do well? Who gave you that ability? What he's saying is we're stewards, not owners of our gifts. So we're not supposed to hoard them. We're supposed to use them for others. What do I have that I can use to help somebody else? You know, when I receive gifts from God, he gives me a duty to serve. So they're not a privilege, they're a responsibility. God's saying, I gave you those gifts and I gave you those to serve your brethren. I didn't give you those to get rich or to, you know, uh, you can use for yourself or to glorify yourself. I gave those to you so you could reach out and you could help in X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that you're able to do. Maybe you got money blessings and you can help that way. Maybe you have a house that you can use to help people. You know, what, what do you, what do you feel that? What, what, and, and you can think about personal things, personality things. There's some things that you may be really good at. Are you really good at teaching? Can you help explain something to somebody? Can you help, you know, are you, you know, so, so that's the idea. So this whole thing is the application of love. You know, because we're aliens on a mostly worldly planet, we need to be fervent in our love for one another, forgiving each other, being hospitable to each other without complaint, and using our gifts that God's given us as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, use them to serve my brothers and sisters. Thoughts and comments through 10. That phrase, love will cover a multitude of sins. It's, I think it's wrong to think about that as, you know, a plus or minus game. Like, like my love is going to cover a lot of my sins. When, when you think about that, love is involved in both of the greatest commandments. It's an attitude. It's when you, when your attitude is that way, you're not, it is going to cover a multitude of sins because they're not going to happen. Well, yeah, and I think covering multitude of sins, their sins. My, my brother's sins. I'm right. forgiving you. Right, okay. Yeah. I think not my own. Right. So you think about verse 11. He kind of generalizes this from this idea that we're good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. You know, so what else could we speak besides the utterances of God? What are our other options? Our own. Our own. Utterances. Yeah, which would be out of our own head, ideas, mind, thoughts. Yeah, so speak the things that God gives us. You know, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Remember back in John chapter 7 and uh, verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And he who speaks from himself speaks his own glory, but he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true. And there's several passages where he says he didn't speak on his own. He spoke what God told him. That's what we need to do. You know, speak the will of God, speak the word of God, speak the message of God. Instead of coming up with our own ideas, we're way too full of our own philosophies and our own think-sos and our own, you know, brand of, you know, philosophy, way of looking at life. And then whoever serves is do so as, as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. So serve out of God's strength. Um, and you do that so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. If we glorify ourselves, we detract from God's glory. So we we serve from God's grace and God's gifts so as to glorify Him. And we've got to recognize that. So what do you say when somebody says, Oh, you are just so wonderful with taking care of children. Or when they say, Oh, you help so much fixing people's cars. Or, you know, you are just so encouraging. 
or whatever it is they may say to us as we use the gifts God gave us to serve, well, God gave me that. Praise God. Glorify God. Thank God. It's God who gave me the gift. It's God who gave me the opportunity. It's God who gave me the health and the strength and whatever else. God's the one to be glorified. And we need to more consciously seek that. I've used this illustration, but it's been a long time. Years ago, there was, I was preaching in church, and I preached a sermon to young people about some things I thought were important to young people. Teenagers, let's say. There were quite a few in this church. And one of the guys in the congregation, teenage guy, who probably had his finger on the pulse of the teenagers better than anybody, who cared and who knew what was going on, talked to me afterwards. He said, that was good, but that's not what we need. And he proceeded to tell me what we need, which he knew. And so, I don't know, maybe the next Sunday, I preached what he said we needed. And I think four young people came forward and one came forward and was baptized. Uh, it was quite impactful. He had been talking with these other young people about some of those things. He was very involved. And he told me what to preach. And I did, and that's what they needed. You know? Uh, and so I talked to him that afternoon and I said, well, you know, the credit for all that is belongs to you. He said, no, I think we ought to give all the glory to God. Isn't that, isn't that exactly the right thing? That is precisely where the glory belongs. It's never to us. He had a gift at that point in knowing what was going on. And thankfully at that moment, a heart to serve God. He's not serving him now as far as I know, unfortunately. Uh, but, but he was there. And, uh, you know, but all glory should belong to God. That's what he's saying. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Probably God there, not Jesus. But it could go either way. But, but you know, we need to glorify the Lord. And, and so everything we say or do, we say and do in a way that reflects glory and honor to God and doesn't promote ourselves and doesn't make everybody look at us and say, oh, wow, isn't he great? Isn't that difficult? How much do we like people telling us that we're great? Isn't that cool? Does that make you feel good? You know, and when they tell you you're the best thing since uh, sliced bread, you know, besides the fact you know they're getting a little carried away with themselves, it makes you feel good. So we've got to really rethink that and realize, well, who gave me the ability to do this? And and if I do it for the Lord, I mean, shouldn't he receive the glory? I think we just get way too focused on ourselves. And we want to be honored. And pretty soon we're doing it more for our honor than for God's anyway. We're figuring out ways that we can, you know, kind of draw attention to ourselves as we do it. Thoughts and comments? Is there a way to to direct the glory back to God without it sounding... Like, <laughs> like insincere. Uh, uh, yeah, you're yeah. just like, oh well, that's from God, and you sound really weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've done this, and I'm like, well, that didn't go well. Someone did something for me once, and I actually sent a thank you note. I know, crazy. Um, and they responded with a thank you note type thing that said, you know, it's it's just because God has given me all these blessings, and that's why I was able. And I'm like. I just said thank you. Just you know, go with it. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I said thank you. I'm glad that you are you know displaying uh, God's virtues. You know, kind of thing. I mean, I, I even had already acknowledged that God was in the picture. It wasn't like I was. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I take that my thank I'm sorry you. I said thank you to you and not to. Yeah. It can kind of make the person saying thank you feel like you know, guilty or awkward, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I always kind of a trick to saying it in a non-awkward way. Well, and you also almost sound stuck up. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, God gave me that. Like, <laughs> well, um, I was trying to say, like, I appreciate, like, I was, I was trying to say I appreciate that, and then maybe say something like, I appreciate also that God blessed me to be able to do that. 
don't know if that's... Okay, so... <laughs> it is possible... Not at all. It is possible to use God's name to glorify yourself. So it is possible for somebody to say the right thing, but they're doing that to get glory. You know, humility is really elusive. Because uh, when we start wearing our humility badge, we probably lost it. And so if we're, uh, if we're trying to say that so that we can sound humble, then we probably already have missed the boat. Um, but I would suggest a few things. One is maybe we need to change the culture of our speaking. Maybe it shouldn't sound weird if somebody said, well, praise God for that, or I'm, that, that, that was the Lord's gift, or whatever. Why should that be weird? That ought to be what we say. And remember how Paul would often compliment people by thanking God for the good qualities in them. He, he didn't so much, most of the time, give such direct compliments. He did so, in some ways, and he was... He was quick to recognize progress and good points and so forth. But he very much spoke about the Lord as he talked about those things. So maybe we need to do that more. Uh, and, And so maybe we need to get to where we just expect, you know, to reflect glory to God, both as the one giving the compliment and as the one receiving it. Um, On the other hand, I understand that there could be a problem if you say, well, you know, that was just a wonderful class. And I say, well, yes, I know. God really gave me wonderful abilities to be able to speak so well and to help so much. And I just talk on and on. Well, it becomes like I'm kind of using God to promote myself. So you don't want to roll your ego all around in the compliment. And if, if what I say is going to do that, then maybe I just need to say thank you and move forward. Sometimes that may be safer. But I think we can get to where we sincerely and naturally say, thank God. And I think we can get to where we don't really prefer getting the compliments. Especially when they're not very God-centered or they're just overdone. You know, and I don't... So I, I think it's it's helpful to... You know, reflect that. I don't know. What do you think? I, I talked too much. About I do agree that I think for me, stuff like that becomes less awkward with practice. Yes. Like you sort of learn how to say it, and also maybe it just starts sounding less awkward to you. Um, you know, I do a great job of talking about God, and <laughs> but. Um, I have found that, like, when I was in high school or college, I was, like, so nervous about talking about God to non-Christian people. Like, it sounds awkward, and, like, I don't know what to do, and I don't do a great job of it now, but I feel so much more comfortable now just even talking to my coworkers, like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow, Lord willing, or, you know, oh, you went to church, and, you know, the lesson... Things like that are not nearly as awkward to me as they were. So I do feel like, to some extent, we do get a lot better and, practice. And, you know, there's a sense in which there's an inherent awkwardness in talking to worldlings about God. You know, they're <laughs> going to think that's kind of crazy some of the time. But we do it anyway. Because God is important to us. Let's not camouflage that and cover it up. You know, uh, so, so I think you know, talking more about the Lord is not a bad thing. I will suggest this. We need to be careful that we don't hurt people with our compliments. So, and that's a challenge sometimes. We need to help them reflect on the Lord. Um, And so, and there's a fine line. You know, some of these young guys give their first, second, or fifth talk. Alright, so A... Are they feeling like that was the most horrible thing that could ever have been done and they'll never want to do it again? You know, so we tend to try to say something positive and encouraging. And some of them I know pretty well, and I I can just say, that was fine. That that went okay, no problem. And and that makes them, I think, helps take the pressure off. And, you know, it was okay. They don't... (laughs) 
very commonly in that situation, you don't like getting complimented a lot. You know, it's awkward. You know, there, there was a boy who gave his first talk not too long ago at, at uh, Parkersville, and he was extremely nervous, and I'm not surprised. Uh, but he, when he went to the back, I mean, uh, you know, right afterwards, and then I, I was the first one back there, and I talked to him a second, I said, don't you feel better now? Now he said, no, I don't. I said, you will once you leave here. You know, he was still really uptight about what he's going to be said. Believe it or not, his second talk was incredibly better. It was way better. And, uh, you know, it was cool. Uh, I think he just, doing it once, kind of broke the ice for him. And he was much more relaxed. Uh, so I think some compliment is appropriate. But if it does too much, it's <clears throat> almost embarrassing. Or it can be prideful, you know, for the person. So I think we're trying to kind of, you know, how can I say this in a way that's encouraging but doesn't encourage wrong thoughts? Could you say, like, oh, I really love that passage. Like, that was so cool that we looked at that together in your talk or something like that. Sure. Some people said words about that. I I think it's very helpful. Uh, I think maybe saying, you know, this helped me with this or that. And reflecting on that, that's often what I'll try to say. You know, some people will overdo compliments, and I'll say, you know, it was a good passage. It is a good passage. Very encouraging. Very helpful. Because that, you know, I've said this before, but it's so true. Almost no brethren I know are good speakers. If they were talking about anything else, they were given a speech on anything else, it wouldn't be very good. It wouldn't be something people really want to listen to. <laughs> the thing that makes brethren good preachers and teachers is they've got tremendous material. And and it it is incredible. And it is powerful. It really is. But it's not because they have great speaking ability. I'm not saying nobody does. But for the most part, when you think about a really moving, helpful lesson, it's 90% the scripture and 10% how they said it which will be true anyway probably so is there a place for like giving someone some encouraging mm-hmm. comments and like mm-hmm. and receiving those and being encouraged that they said you did a good job you yes. know <clears throat> I think so but try to be as God centered in that as we can most of the time and Paul will say things like uh, you know uh, I don't need to write you about this because you you already do it, or you know I, I see that you're growing in this, or whatever. He will he will acknowledge that, but the majority of the time he's saying I thank God that you've grown in this, or you know I I how can I thank God enough for all the encouragement I got from your this or that or whatever. I think it's more safe to more of the time, you know, reflect that. Does that make sense? But I think, yes, we need to encourage each other. And, and we need to know people well enough to know who needs it. And, you know, when when somebody does something and they're really insecure about it, I think it's appropriate to say, hey, listen, that went off, off okay. That was that was fine. I, I think it's fine to do it that way if you know the person well and reassure them. You know, if you say that was the best thing that's ever been done from this pulpit, or whatever, I'm just thinking about talks, I realize there's a ton of other stuff. You know, just using that as an example. Well, everybody knows that's not true. <laughs> Don't say that. You know, say, "Hey, it was a, it was good. It wasn't. There was no problem with that. Everybody, I think, understood that. It was okay, and there were no problems." Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's the reassurance people are looking for. You gotta see on that talk. <laughs> no, but it's not like that. You're not trying to get a grade. You're just trying to know that you didn't mess up and fall out on your face and you know just hurt everybody. That that's the real feeling you have. I mean, in those situations, you're just you're you're afraid that this is the worst thing that's ever been said, and you just stood out as just terrible, and so you're needing reassurance. No, it's fine. Yeah, I, I think there's a great deal of difference between, um, you know, what we're talking about, where someone just overly focuses on the person and whatever, and like what I would say to Paul for his talk, you know, like, oh, you did a good job, you know, this and that, like, encouraging someone that I know well and that I have a relationship with, I think it maybe is a different thing. You know what he needs, you know where he's at, you know what's safe. 
So I don't feel like, you know, Ariel would be wrong or in any way bad to say, like, oh, you did a good job, you know, because I know he's not going to get a big head from that. Or, right. Or even, like, not talks, but, like, someone who's not done anything in particular, but just saying that you notice that they, you know, continue to do good things, you know, sure. like, sure. giving them encouragement. Sure. Uh, and, like, and that feels good to get that, yeah. you know, but I don't know if that's... No, I think that's fine, and I think often with that, saying, you know, I thank God for that, or I see how God's really given you strength and, you know, consistency, or whatever it is. Yeah. But sure, I mean, I, guide yourself by the scriptures, and I mean, think about Paul and, and Peter and others, I mean, they say some complimentary things, but like I say, a good part of them, a good percentage, are recognizing the Lord somehow in that. <laughs> well, I had so much in it. Uh, maybe it did. 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed with his glory, sorry, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it, is, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So, don't be surprised. Now, verse 4 they are surprised when you don't participate with them in all these evils. But you don't be surprised when this terrible persecution comes on you as if it was something strange. It's right in line with what we ought to expect with predictions Jesus made with the uh, uh, analogy with the faithful of God from previous eras. The modern idea that suffering's not normal for a Christian or that it should be avoided at all costs is just not reflected here. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's something strange. Don't, you know, it, it's it's not. You, know? you don't belong here and people don't like it. That's the way it's going to be. They called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household, Jesus said. So, and to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Think about the joy of sharing with Jesus this suffering. Wow. That's kind of a privilege, to suffer with Jesus. And we rejoice anticipating the joy that we'll receive at the revelation of his glory. We know that when he comes back, and we've been faithfully serving him in spite of the terrible tribulation, we will receive great joy and glory with him. So we rejoice. We, look, we, we, we are happy even to be considered worthy to suffer for the Lord. However... Don't think that every suffering is praiseworthy. Because some isn't. There are people who suffer just because they're ornery and obnoxious. There is no great benefit or, you know, positive thing in that. So, you know, he, he talks about the proper reasons to suffer. And it's easy to rationalize a punishment that's deserved. Well, they were just out to get me because I'm a Christian. Well, no, it's because you showed up late for work every day and you didn't have to do the job. That's why they fired you. It had nothing to do with being a Christian. You know, or you were just annoying. You know, or whatever. I mean, that's the thing he's guarding against. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. You know, so he's thinking about some of the reasons why somebody might suffer. I mean, you know, if you... Uh, Obviously, if you kill somebody, that's probably grounds to suffer. If you stole something from the company, don't be surprised when you suffer. If you're an evildoer, or for that matter, if you're just bugging other people and interfering in their business. You know, I think he's going down and saying, you know, you can just be difficult. And, and you can suffer for it, but don't think that there's some praise in that. Don't think that that's suffering as a Christian. You know how that is. You see people every once in a while who are like that. You know? who they're just difficult to get along with, and they always think that they're suffering as a Christian. It's not. And it isn't always that way. So 
we need to be, you know, sober about that and evaluate ourselves. But he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, you understand that those who were uh, uh, Jesus' people in the first century did not normally use the term Christian for themselves. What terms would they have used for themselves? What would they have called themselves? Saints. Saints. Disciples. What? Disciples. Disciples. Followers of the way. All right. They were a part of the way, followed the way. It's another very common term they used. Probably the most common. I might be wrong about that. Brethren. Brethren, yeah. So disciples, saints, brethren, that's what they usually called themselves. I suspect that Christian was kind of a slur, kind of a negative term the enemies used. He's a Christian. He's one of these Christ people. You know, uh, kind of like people do with some things like that today. Though, yeah, he's he thinks he's holy. You know, whatever people, he's a he's, he's a saint. You know, they don't use a saint to say, oh, he's a you know wonderfully holy person. They'll use to you know belittle him. So that's probably what he was saying. You know, and think about how embarrassing it would have been for honest Christians to be suspected, arrested, imprisoned, and condemned as evildoers. Wouldn't that be hard? To have everybody knowing you as the guy who's got a rap sheet. You know? Uh, but there's no cause for feeling shame if the suffering results from just from being labeled contemptuously as a Christian. You know, if that's the reason, don't be ashamed. Glorify God in that. You know, that can turn turn this thing into a name to honor God. Instead of being ashamed you're a Christian, like they say, glorify God in this name. Embrace it. And say, yes, I'm proud of it. I'm glad to be called a Christian, a Christ person, you know, Jesus person, or whatever they're saying. Absolutely. Don't, don't you be ashamed of that when they say, oh, you're a saint. Praise God for that. You know, if that's really the reason, they're really persecuting you because you don't fit in here, because you don't, you know, live like they do, and they don't, you don't do what they do, and you don't talk like they do, and all that, then be, be happy about that. Thoughts and comments through 16. Well, he says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does he mean by that? I think he's talking about the persecution. And I think you can see the persecution is kind of the testing or the judgment that the Christians go through. Now, if, if the sons go through that, what will the outsiders go through? You know, yeah, you could, you could make yourself <laughs> marry there. Prayer four seventeen. So you know, I mean, this, this it's, if it's this bad for the the family, it's this bad for the Christians. They're going through all these terrible. Persecutions, the, the, everybody thinking they're strange, talking bad about them, you know, probably imprisoning them, maybe killing them. What's gonna happen with the rest of the people? Yeah. I mean, God lets the, his family go through this. Can you imagine what the, the aliens are gonna have to go through? You know, if, it, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is, righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man, or what will become of the godless man and the sinner? You know, wow, this will be way worse. You know, so it's, it's a dangerous myth to think that when you become a Christian, your life gets easier. No, you're going to be going through really hard things. But stop and think about it. Would you rather go through those hard things, or the hard things the non-Christians are going to have to go through one day? They're going to go through things way, 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 way worse. Do you think it's bad for you? It's like, it's almost like uh, some of the Brazilians have this expression, if you think it's bad with Christ, imagine what it would be like without him. You know, and if you think it's bad as a Christian, imagine what it's going to be like for the unbelievers. That's what he's saying. So don't get all bent out of shape over what you're suffering. And then he says, therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God, 
shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. You know, give yourself to him. He will take care of you. Now, entrust your souls. What does soul mean in First Peter? Person. Person. You entrust yourselves. You don't try to somehow detach your souls and let God take care of that and, you know, he doesn't take care of any of the rest of you. This is not using soul in some kind of a soul versus body or something like that. Entrust yourself. It's just like what he said, though not in the American Standard. They were inconsistent. But when he brings the eight persons safely through the water, which is not a good translation either. They messed up on that verse in 320. But it's, it's literally eight souls. But did he save their spirit and not their body? Oh, he saved them. That's the point. So entrust yourself to God. You know, when you're being persecuted, let God take care of you. You know, rely on him. Thoughts and comments on chapter 4. So verse 18 is more like if it's hard as in persecution. Because when I first said it, I think I was thinking like if it's like so difficult that even if you're righteous, you're barely saved. (laughs) No, I don't think there's a concept of some... uh, you know, getting by by the skin of your teeth. Uh, okay, I was thinking like, yeah, I guess like... I'm thinking of Second Peter one eleven. for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. That doesn't sound like you barely get in by the skin of your teeth. Wait, which one was that in Second Peter? Second Peter 1.11. So you, it means that you're saved with difficulty, as in there's difficulty accompanying... Yes. Not that it was really hard to yes. save it was, you. Yeah, not saying it was hard to save you. And okay. saying, this is, think about all that you're going through as saved people. Okay, that is not, that makes more sense, but that's, that's not, not how I read it. Reading yeah. to me. Uh, what you said if it is with difficulty, do I choose to say? Correct. Oh, somebody got, anybody got the NIV? Or I do. ESV or if it is hard for the righteous to be saved. So that means, <laughs> like, that sounds like wow. you're barely saved. Yeah, the, the, the context is saying, the hardness, the difficulty is the persecution. So, not that it's hard to get them saved, or, you know, somehow they squeak through, but, you know, <laughs> if it's, if, it, if you have to go through all this, if you go through all the persecution, suffering, difficulty, hostility, you know, disparaging remarks and all that, is that that's the difficulty, then what will become of the godless man in the center? Yeah, I, I can see how people will get that. No. Not correct, but that's where you have to look at the context and just see what he's saying. Is that, is verse 18... A quotation from Proverbs somewhere or other. Yeah, it says Proverbs 11.31, which, if I'm in the right place, it says, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Yeah. Which doesn't... Sound much like it being hard for the righteous to be saved verse. It doesn't sound much like a quotation of that. It's, yeah, it's sort of like a. I have to go back and look at yeah. that. I don't. I don't have a statement about that. Uh, I do think that is from that passage. I think that that's where it's from. Uh, but I don't know if that involves the Septuagint or if it's just a really loose translation, or if it's even used. Sometimes, you know, sometimes in those situations where it doesn't say and the scripture is fulfilled or something like that. They may just be using some Bible language to express their point in a different way. So, I don't know. Just really weird. But it's in capital letters in my Bible, so it has to be a quotation. Absolutely. <laughs> also, it could be that they weren't trying to quote and the translator just thought it was close enough. Is that a possibility? Yes, it, it, it theoretically is. At least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are times when there appear to be allusions but we're not sure, you know, quoting a snatch of it, but yeah, sometimes you wouldn't know for sure is it really intended to be a quotation. And it's kind of like we do sometimes. I mean, we we sometimes use snatches of Bible phrases and things just in everyday conversation where we're not necessarily even thinking about the Bible when we do it, especially the more we study the Bible, the more it's just kind of common to kind of pick up some of that phrasing. And, you know, it may or may not really be an illusion. In him writing, we call them scripture snippets. Okay. Just little little phrases yeah. that you end up, they show up, and it's like, well, you know, I can, they could literally footnote every word in this this hymn, but. Uh, yeah. Right, right. 
Yeah, no, and you know, it's good when our speech is, you know, very full of, you know, scriptures, language, and things like that. Not necessarily King James, we're not trying to draw that. Wherefore art thou, or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the art thou. Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare had the same language as the KJV. I mean, same way. I had other thoughts on chapter four. It's a hard worldview to have to think like, I I have to suffer in this life, so I'll have my reward later. Yet everybody else's end is complete destruction. And and I think that that's why it's it's so easy to have a group mentality that oh everything's fine everybody's okay it's until we develop the mind of God <laughs> we're able to really see things as He does. Yeah, and we're sharing the sufferings of Christ. We, you know, are rejoicing to be able to be counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And, you know, I think we've got to come to really love the Lord and love His cause. Think about people who, you know, are ridiculed, but they really have a cause with their persecution. Think about heroism, you know, in difficult circumstances. I mean, I think we're called to being heroic. We're out, we're out on a mission, we're out here on a mission to save people who don't even want to be saved. You know, and trying to convince them that they're lost and that they need the salvation. And, and living, we're kind of an outpost of the kingdom, you know, here on an alien planet, and seeking to promote the glory of God and the kingdom of God. I mean, I think when you think of it in those terms, that's hard to think of it in those terms because we're too focused on this life. But if we could think about it that way more and see it like that more, then there is some satisfaction, almost... Uh, an excitement about being able to suffer for this heroic cause that we would be glad to die for. We we have we struggle with that in this country. You know, I think our prosperity and and everything. It's like, is there anybody who has that kind of heroism today for anything? You know, who would die for something today? In I don't know if many people would voluntarily do that. You know, because we're just kind of soft. Other thoughts and comments? All right, well, probably should knock off there and then just not try to start.